All right, but I'm now I'm excited to actually jump in the Word with you this morning together, and we'll be wrapping up uh, the story of Israel's second king by considering one of his greatest songs. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 22. So you can open up there with me. The words will be on the screen behind me. And then uh, next week, we're going to transition into the life of Solomon, David's son. Um, now, now, our passage for this morning is going to be quite a bit different from uh, the material in 2 Samuel that we've, that we've been dealing with over the last couple weeks. Firstly, we're, we're about to read some poetry, which is going to feel quite a bit different from the narrative material that we've been dealing with recently. Uh, secondly, it's out of chronological order from the events that we've been discussing. This, David writes this at a time when he's just assumed control over his kingdom in Jerusalem. And that takes us back all the way back to really 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, and we, last week we talked about chapter 24. So we're kind of going back in time a little bit. And I think that's deliberate on the part of the, uh, the author, uh, the person who put together uh, 2 Samuel. But then thirdly, this, this song is very triumphalistic. It's different in mood or tone. Uh, it's a song of praise which is really kind of jarring considering the fact that over the last few weeks, Justin has walked us through back to back to back to back David's failures and sin. It's like we're being reminded of an earlier David that we may well have forgotten of by now. So as we jump in, let me pray for our time, and then we'll set the stage by reading the first six verses of 2 Samuel chapter 22. So let's pray with me. Father, if your spirit is not present and working in us this morning, then I might as well not even preach a word. We desperately need you to work through your word. So would you change us? Would you make us more like your son? Would you run a sword through the idols of my own heart? And would you take to the chopping block the false kings that we have chosen for ourselves? And in doing so, would you lead us to truer grace, truer comfort, and truer refuge in your reign? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, read with me, follow along in 2 Samuel chapter 22. Uh, We're going to read the first six verses here. David sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord rescued him from the power of all his enemies, including Saul. He said, the Lord is my high ridge, my stronghold, my deliverer. My God is my rocky summit where I take shelter. My shield, the horn that saves me, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise and I was delivered from my enemies. The waves of death engulfed me. The currents of chaos overwhelmed me. The ropes of Sheol or the grave, they they tightened around me. The snares of death trapped me. Now, uh, my summer job, as some some of you guys might know, my summer job uh, in high school and then uh, early on in, in, uh, in college was to work as a commercial fishing crew member out in the inlet. And on one particular day, I remember, we, uh, it was perfectly early, early in the morning, perfectly flat calm when we left the mouth of the river uh, where we had anchored up that night. And uh, we got out uh, into the inlet. There was just a little bit of a breeze, but it was, it was basically beautiful, flat calm. But then as is pretty common, as the day went on, the wind picked up. And by about midday, uh, the waves were 
getting pretty high. It was very uncomfortable and not very fun to work. And I didn't feel unsafe, but uh, we were getting rocked around quite a bit. And then sure enough, uh, by early evening, uh, or by late afternoon, early evening, the waves had risen to higher than anything I'd ever been out in before. And, uh, I mean, it was like feeling like we were on top of a mountain and then we'd drop into the bottom of a valley. You'd look up high and see, see, see the waves way above the boat. We were getting slammed against the edge of the boat. The wind's whipping our face. Water's coming on deck. Uh, and then on top of that, you're working, so you got fish everywhere. There's slime and gut. And it's like, it's not fun. And I remember in the chaos of that moment, just, just this feeling... I would rather be anywhere else right now, right? This is not where I wanted to be. What, what I really wanted was to just to go back to the mouth of the river where we started in that flat, calm water, right? Uh, I remember in, in the violence of the ocean just longing for a safe harbor, a place of refuge. And, that, and uh, you know, we, we, we were out there for hours kind of just thrashing, getting beat, and then we had to take the boat ride all the way back home and getting beat. And, but, and what was remi- what was amazing is that as soon as just by way of the, by virtue of the way the wind was blowing that day as soon as we turned the corner into the mouth of the river it was like we entered into a whole new planet right like the the water was completely calm uh and and the, the contrast between the raging inlet and the protected harbor was was that stark from, from David's words this morning, we get the idea that David, he knew a thing or two about the importance of a safe harbor. Right? He wasn't a fisherman, but he uses the picture of raging water to describe the most perilous events of his life. He tells us that the waves of death engulfed me, the currents of chaos overwhelmed me. Right? This is how David sums up his reign up until this point. His fight against Goliath, his, his fleeing from, from Saul in the caves, and all the civil wars that he fought between Saul's son and his own sons. At each of these points and at various others, we've seen David faced with near certain death, betrayal, and defeat. And moreover, more recently, we've seen how the sin of pride and deception plagued him and brought death and despair to his family. Yet David does not merely write this poem for his own benefit, right? He writes it for the benefit of a people, right? He, he, and for the people of God for generations to come. The poem was written for a community that is the nation of Israel at a time when it may well have felt like they'd been left without a harbor or a place of refuge. Throughout the history of the nation, just like their king, they, they were in constant need of a refuge. And as the people of God today, nearly almost 3,000 years later, we can identify with this need for a refuge and a safe harbor. There are some of us this morning gathered here who need a refuge from what ails us physically. For others, conflict poisons our marriages. And you see no safe harbor in sight in which you can find peace from the bitterness and fighting. And for all of us, sin plagues our hearts and our lives. Our failures and disobedience have brought guilt and shame that we cannot deal with on our own. In fact, we all must look for refuge outside of ourselves. The question is, in whom are we seeking refuge? 
In this song of the Messiah, David redirects our search for refuge. His, his words are meant to attack every other lesser king or idol in which the people of God may be tempted to seek refuge. And he does this by reorienting us around the goodness of God's kingdom. So that's what I want us to consider this morning, the goodness of God's kingdom. So let's first look at David's initial response to his distress, beginning in verse 7. David says, In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called to my God. From his heavenly temple, he heard my voice. He listened to my cry for help. The earth heaved and shook. The foundations of the sky trembled. They heaved because he was angry. Smoke ascended from his nose. Fire devoured as it came from his mouth. He hurled down fiery coals. He made the sky sink as he descended. A thick cloud was under his feet. He mounted a winged angel and flew. He glided on the wings of the wind. He shrouded himself in darkness and thick rain clouds. From the brightness in front of him came coals of fire. The Lord thundered from the sky. The sovereign one shouted loudly. His, he shot those and scattered them, lightning and routed them. The depths of the sea were exposed. The inner regions of the world were uncovered by the Lord's battle cry by the powerful breath from his nose. He reached down from above and grabbed me. He pulled me from surging water. He rescued me from my strong enemies, from those who hate me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord helped me. He brought me out into a wide open place. He delivered me because he was pleased with me. So here David called upon the Lord and the Lord hears David's cry for help. And then he takes action. And the language used to describe God's action is tremendous. Heaven and earth are shaken and tremble. He descends from his heavenly palace on a flying beast. He is shrouded in looming dark thunderclouds. Do you, do you get the image of a storm here? Have you ever stood on a high place and looked out and see a, just a chaotic storm rolling in? Right, Fire and smoke are also billowing around him. Lightning is blasting in the sky. Right? And then he, all of heaven and earth are shaken in a way that, does not, that makes last year's earthquake look like nothing in comparison. Right? Now David is using this, this figurative and theological language to paint a picture of the real heart of the, of the matter and the ultimate interpretation of the events of his life. The creator of heaven and earth is summoning the entirety of the cosmos to come to the aid of his anointed. And this, my friends, is what we first must wrestle with as we approach this text. God hears the cries of his people. And in order for us to seek refuge in his reign, we must learn to cry out to the Lord who actually is able to do something about it. Now, for many of us, and myself would be included in this category, this is a challenge because it means that in order to find refuge in God as our fortress, we must acknowledge our inability to fend for and to save ourselves. Just like the people of Israel, we want a king of our own choosing. David here recognizes his helpless state for what it is and cries out out like a child crying for his mother. 
And really, as we think about what it means to seek refuge in the reign of God, that, that is the perfect illustration for us this morning. Some of you guys know that um, my wife and our recent parents were five months into this thing. Um, and so we've come to experience a, a child crying uh, in a new way, right? My, you see, my son, he only knows one solution to any discomfort, any pain, any, any stressor in his life. Scream at the top of your lungs until your mom or dad comes and gets you, right? Now, I don't know exactly what, you're, what struggles you're facing, right? But I do know that we are all ultimately helpless to save ourselves and that no other king that we could turn to can rescue like God can rescue. They are all ultimately impotent. So would you lay aside your false claims to independence and self-salvation and instead cry out to the God who hears you and can actually respond to you? For when we turn to, our own, for a, to a king of our own choosing, whether it be our own competency or, our, or a substance of some kind or, or financial security, what we're doing is we're looking for refuge from our angst. But in reality, we're acting like an infant who refuses to cry for help from his parents. It just doesn't happen. It doesn't make any sense. So cry out to him and know that he is not only able, he is also eager. If you notice the language that, that's used um, here to describe God's mo- movement, it's not only cosmic in scope, but it's covenantal in, in nature. It's motivated by God's intense passion and love for his people. It's actually the same kind of language of, of smoke billowing and a dark thundercloud that's used to describe God redeeming his people out from the land of Egypt. Right? This is not a God who is reluctantly or dutifully answering the prayers of his annoyingly sinful children and people, right? This is a mother bear race sector cubs, right? This is the God who, who hears you when you cry to him. Do you believe that? Guilt and shame, I think, have a way of creeping in to our lives and they isolate us from, the, from a covenantal God. Yet, my friend, God does not hear your cry because you impress him or because you can somehow twist his arm into doing what you want him to. No, God hears your cry on the sheer basis that he has heard the cry of his anointed. For just as David cried out on the day of his disaster, so Christ cried out on the day that he died. Yet he cried not that he might be saved from his calamity, but that we might be saved from the calamity of our own making and of our own choices. So we can cry out to him with full confidence that God hears our prayers with the same eagerness that he heard the prayer of Christ. God is not reluctant. We can be confident. And we can do this daily, blocking out each time just to lay our anxieties to God reciting, rehearsing our fears, our frustrations, and our failures, knowing that your Father cares for you. But this leads us to our second point. For not only does our King hear the cry of his people, he also honors his covenant. Would you look at verses 21 through 28 with me? We can't read every verse in this poem. It's 51 verses, but we're going to read the next few, okay? So uh, 21 through 28 are on the screen behind me. 
The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I am not guilty of turning from my God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. I have been blameless before him and have kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. To the faithful you show yourself faithful. To the blameless you show yourself blameless. To the pure you show yourself pure. But to the devious you show yourself shrewd. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. Now at first glance, these words really rub us wrong, don't they? Uh, David sounds super arrogant. Uh, God was good to me because I have my act together, right? I'm blameless, and I've kept myself from sinning. But I, if we look carefully, I, I hope we'll, we'll see that that's not quite what David is saying. Instead, um, if we look at the, David's life as a whole, we see that certainly he did not view himself in this way. Right? We, we've seen direct quote multiple times, I have sinned and acted foolishly. Okay? David knew where he was. But when we look at the real centerpiece of this movement in the poem, we find that David's focus is not on his own righteousness or his own self-salvation. Rather, the focus here is on the covenantal faithfulness of God and the trustworthy character of the God who rescued him. Right? God here is primarily the one on display, not David, not any man. Right? When David says in 21 through 25 that the Lord repaid me according to the cleanness of my hands. He's simply saying this. God is true to his word. He upholds and honors his end of the covenant. And this is exactly where we see him go in 26 through 28. He says, God is merciful. God is faithful, blameless, and pure. There, in other words, there is no question as to whether he will come through for those whom he has entered into a covenant with. God honors his covenant. And David rejoices in God's covenant faithfulness. Now what David is doing here, he's not only worshiping God for this, but he's also teaching us something very important about the reign of God that is, ve- that is very different from the lesser kings and idols that we choose for ourselves. See, lesser kings make promises that they cannot keep. In fact, they say one thing and deliver another. This is certainly true of Israel's story, as as we've seen. Israel wanted kings who would give them victory and prosperity. That's what they wanted. Instead, they got kings who only took and took and took. And this is exactly what we do when we choose kings for ourselves as well. We look for escape from an image on a screen, and we find ourselves not free, but actually enslaved by it. We find not pleasure, but pain and shame. We look for security in our bank account or in a retirement fund. But we, what we realize, what was intended to bring us peace, actually brought, brings more anxiety as our minds and our hearts are increasingly consumed by that number. How frustrating is this? Would this be in any other aspect of your life? Right? If you're at a restaurant and you order a burger and the waiter brings you a salad, you, you don't, we don't tolerate that thing, right? Uh, burgers and salads do not equate. You probably wouldn't go back there. But this is exactly what we do 
This is exactly what lesser kings do. They say one thing and deliver another. In these verses, then, David is showing us a completely different and altogether better kind of king. He is leading us to a king who actually honors his covenant and who actually does what he says he's going to do. And as God's chosen leader and the representative of his covenant people, David is leading the people of God to seek refuge in the reign of God by entrusting themselves to a God who does what he says he's going to do rather than a lesser king who can only make empty promises. And he tells us how to do this in verse 28. When he says, you save a humble people but your eyes are on the proud to bring them low. The principle here is this. To seek refuge in his reign, we must humble ourselves under his covenant. And this is crucial for us because ultimately it is pride that keeps us serving kings that can't deliver on their promises, isn't it? Right? When we lustfully look at an image on a screen, what are we doing? Well, we're longing for intimacy, so we look for it on a screen rather than finding it in God's design for marriage, right? When we reject God's design, we do so because we pridefully think that our way is better, faster, and will produce better results, right? Or when we strive for glory and acceptance from others, what are we doing? Well, we long for approval, so we seek it in ourselves rather than resting in God's approval of us in Christ. We pridefully assume that our way of seeking refuge is better than what God has provided for us. So my prayer then for each of us in this room this morning is that whether you've not once sought refuge in Christ or whether you've been following him for decades, is that you would not let your own pride hinder you from enjoying the joy and freedom found in a covenant relationship with your creator. Where is, where has, even in the last week, where has pride kept you from enjoying the refuge in his reign? Yet don't miss the hope here that's, that we find in this middle section of the poem. Right? David could say these, these words, I've kept myself from sinning and I've not acted wickedly, I, I'm blameless. And he could be telling the truth in part, right? But we've seen eventually pride crept in and pride creeps in for all of us. What we need is a king who can say those words and mean them in their fullest extent, in their entirety. And this is what the Father has provided for us in Christ, who lived a sinless life yet died for sinful men and women like you and me. And through his death, the resurrection and ascension on our behalf and in our place, he has secured for us the covenantal promises which we do not deserve. Therefore, we know that his mercy is ours irrevocably. His blamelessness is ours undeniably. And he will treat us according to our righteousness. For when he looks on those who have trusted Christ, he sees not their own righteousness, but the blameless cleanness of their substitute, Jesus. Now, David concludes this song by pointing us to a third characteristic of the reign of God. So let's move down. We're going to skip a bunch of verses, I'm sorry, but we're just going to read the last seven verses. 
Uh, he, he quotes it in Romans chapter 15, so would you consider that with me for a minute? Let's read uh, verses, chapter, Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 12. He says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. Firstly, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. But secondly, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, or nations, and sing to your name. There's our verse. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And, I, and again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule or reign over the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles will hope. Now what Paul is doing here is he's writing to encourage divided Jewish and Gentile Christians. And he's encouraging them to humbly serve one another. And he bases his entire argument on the simple fact that Christ, as the Lord is anointed, came, died, and rose again in order that the Gentiles might join the Jews in worshiping God. This is what God is doing in Christ. And it is this principle from which Paul finds his entire purpose for living as a follower of Jesus. He wants to join the king's mission turning enemies into worshipers by proclaiming the king's Messiah. And my friends, if we're going to seek refuge in the reign of God, devoting our whole life and worship to him, then this must be our mission as well. If we have truly come to know and rest in the reign of our true king, then we will want others to get in on his goodness. If we have really come to see the suffering and emptiness that comes from enthroning lesser kings on the, on, the, on the thrones of our hearts, how could we keep from telling our neighbors and coworkers and family members about the joy and freedom found in our true king? Now, this, this does not make it any easier, knowing this, to speak the truth of, of the gospel into people's lives. Right? I, and as I was meditating on this final section of, of the psalm, I became increasingly convicted about my own lack of desire to proclaim the king's message. All right, It will still be awkward and we will still face rejection. But here's our confidence. David screams at us loudly in this text that it is God who fights the battle. God is the one who is expanding his kingdom. He is the one who conquers people's idols and arrests their hearts. We cannot persuade or convince anyone. That's God's job, and he's doing so through his anointed. Our role is to simply speak the words to get the message out there, and God will build his kingdom. My friends, when the reign of God is finally and fully established at the return of his anointed, we will find his reign to be a calm and protective, safe harbor. Until that day, while we wait for him, let us seek refuge by crying out to the one who cried out on our behalf, by humbling ourselves under the one who first humbled himself for us and by joining and building the kingdom of which we have become undeserving citizens. David's words here challenge and attack our idols and our lesser kings. They invite us to seek refuge in the reign of the true king rather than in the reign of the king we choose for ourselves. And if you and I are going to to enjoy refuge in the reign of God, then, then these attributes, these characteristics of the reign of God must 
grip us at the core of who we are. So as we close in prayer, let's, let's pray as our king instructed us to pray. Uh, I know this is, we've done this in the past, but it's not our normal custom. So on the screen behind me are going to be the words of the Lord's Prayer. So would you, would you all just stand with me? And we'll read them out loud together, and then Robbie and Ian are going to come lead us in worship. Let's read them out loud together. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.